Welcome to Educational Alpha. I'm Bill Kelly, CEO of Kai Association and your host, bringing you on the ground conversations with business leaders, educators, and industry colleagues from around the globe. Educational Alpha is sponsored by iCapital, the financial technology company with the mission to power the world's alternative investment marketplace. Part innovator, part educator, and part navigator of the alternatives industry, iCapital offers intuitive, scalable digital solutions that have transformed how private market and hedge fund investments are bought and sold. With iCapital, financial advisors, wealth managers, and asset managers around the world now have access to everything they need to deliver the return and diversification potential of alternatives to high net worth investors. To learn more, visit iCapital.com. For this episode, Bill welcomes a very special guest, sports and business journalist, Jillian Kemmer. She shares how her experiences as a hockey player and a locker room reporter gave her more empathy for her guests, opened her eyes to the importance of diversity in the workplace, and instilled an appreciation for the evolution of the role of female reporters in the sports industry. But the conversation doesn't stop there. Jillian shares her insights on the importance of democratizing education before product democratization, the concept of illiquidity premium, and the need for greater access to private market opportunities for investors. Listen in. Jillian Kemmer, welcome to Educational Alpha. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to reconnect. You've had sort of a couple of different maybe bookends to a career that's far from over, centering on Asset TV, where we first met, and a very interesting several years in between, and we want to get into that as well. But maybe a little bit, and you can touch upon that too, but maybe a little bit about your background for the listeners, and then we can take the conversation from there. Sure. So my career began at Institutional Investor, a hedge fund publication called Absolute Return, And I began my career breaking scoops on hedge funds of a billion or more, which was one of the hardest beats to cut your teeth on in finance, because as you know better than anyone, Bill, the secretive nature and the esoteric nature of the strategies to come in as a journalist with no experience in the field and to immediately be thrown into the hedge fund world is a really fascinating, if not absolutely terrifying experience. But it was a trial by fire and I couldn't have asked for a better first editor in Josh Friedlander. So I immediately hit the ground running as a journalist in hedge funds. And I had a great experience of covering hedge funds in North America, had the opportunity to cover them in Brazil for a brief time. I did an eight-part feature about the economy in Brazil around 2014-15, which was a fascinating time to be looking at the hedge fund strategies coping and coming up out of that economy there. And then even traveled to Southeast Asia and was moderating hedge fund panels in Hong Kong and otherwise actually met Jane Bach, uh, Kaya, board member and William Ma during my time there. So I had a really rich early experience as a journalist covering hedge funds for absolute return. And then I did some broadcast journalism courses at night because I was interested in expanding platforms. Journalism was changing rapidly and I felt that as a professional, I had to change with it. And I wound up being scouted to move over to the broadcast side and took a position with Asset TV in 2016. And at first, I was managing the institutional and alternative side, but then later became the head of programming for the Americas there. 
And I believe really that's where we first connected, although I had heard your name many times before. And I know I interviewed you and many members and Kaya holders throughout my years at Asset TV. And had a lot of opportunities to then expand over into retail because Asset TV's bread and butter has long been its financial advisory base, although they have a big institutional plan sponsor consultant viewership. And so I had the opportunity to expand my breadth in finance as well. But in 2018, a really interesting opportunity crossed my desk, one that I could have never really dreamed of, which is that I won a reporting fellowship to move to Moscow, which is a fellowship that no longer exists, unfortunately, because of the climate we're in, which is called the Alpha Fellowship, which was given to a couple of Americans every year for, I think, 16 or 18 years which allowed Americans to go and to work in Russia and to get an experience of what it was like to be there and to hopefully bring that latent knowledge back to a variety of different industries. And at the time, I thought I was going to stay in finance. And I was looking at Bloomberg and Deutsche Welle and the New York Times and other media outlets and hoping to stay within my beat. But a really strange opportunity came knocking, one that hit upon a childhood desperate love of mine, which was ice hockey. And in fact, the Chinese expansion team of the Russian Hockey League was looking for an English-speaking press attache and content creator because they had just hired a bunch of NHL players that spoke English who were of Chinese descent, but they were hoping to naturalize in time for the Olympics. And as a lifelong hockey fan who actually fell in love with hockey because of the first Russian players that were playing in the NHL in the 90s, it felt like a stroke of fate that I couldn't pass up. And so for a year, I thought, okay, I'll do this for a year, go back to finance and always look back fondly on the year I spent in Russia covering hockey. And that year actually ballooned into four years. And eventually, through a series of interesting maneuvers and meanderings, I became the manager of international media for the Russian Ice Hockey Federation, which is the governing body that runs the Olympic team. And I covered Russian hockey as a podcaster, a broadcaster, a writer, a columnist. And that unfortunately all came crashing down, of course, with Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And suddenly I was fleeing the country in the middle of the night as a Russian expat living in St. Petersburg, seeing this world that I had built in this career transition essentially disintegrate in front of my eyes. And it was heartbreaking and even more so heartbreaking witnessing what was happening in a part of the world that I loved so dearly. So I returned to America and had never fallen out of love with finance. It was just an interesting transition that I couldn't pass up. And I was lucky enough that I had the opportunity to return to Asset TV and came back just a few months ago and am now back anchoring and working on a book about some of the interesting experiences I had in Russia. So that was longer than a nutshell, Bill, but that's what I've been doing the past few years. A lot to work with there and congratulations on a very interesting period in your career. So there are a lot of young folks and I've got five kids myself and I just dropped my youngest at college last week. The other four are out and about doing their thing. And I try to give them advice about broadening their horizons. And you can take the safe road. And oftentimes, you can have a very good career doing that. But then oftentimes, you run into these pivots and the road less taken. And I think maybe the curious person takes that path and throws caution to the wind. And oftentimes, it's a building step, maybe less so. And I'd be curious to see what drove you not only to take that fellowship in the first place, which probably had less risk attached to it, but then it seems like you stayed on in Russia longer than the fellowship and did other things. And 
maybe if it wasn't for this heinous act against Ukraine, you could have stayed there as well. And I think some people might say, well, Jillian, look at the path you were on in the US and where you were going. And you had an international remit for some of the travel you've done. Why would you have taken this pivot in the first place? Maybe talk about how you view career, both opportunity and risk. And it's always a balancing act. It's not necessarily black and white, but what drove you to make that decision in the first place? In the moment that I took the fellowship, when the opportunity crossed my desk, when I saw the fellowship, I had long had this itch that I wanted to scratch, which was Russia. It was this part of the world that had fascinated me from when I was young. It was a passion that was very hard to defend or explain. I didn't have familial connections there. There was no real reason why Russia was so interesting to me, but it was this pull in the pit of my stomach that I always had and one that I was really desperate to uncover. And maybe this is sort of new age in a world where we think about things much more cut and dry in terms of risk and opportunity and reward. But I do have a view that when something pulls you like that, you have to listen to it, that you have to obey those passions. It doesn't mean that you obey them at the expense of everything else. I'm not advocating for taking outsized risk with no return. But this fellowship in particular, and this was a different time, and I have to establish that caveat, this was not Russia post full-blown invasion of Ukraine, where it would be indefensible to be standing in Russia right now. And it's certainly not something that I would advise in this moment. But at the time, there was opportunity and the World Cup was kicking off and Russia was trying to make some forays back into the world post the first invasion of Crimea and sanctions economy. And there was opportunity there. And I saw just this opportunity to be someone who took a step closer when a lot of journalists were reporting on the noise as opposed to the signals. And it felt like an opportunity to differentiate. So I took it. Now, why the hockey? It really did feel like this strange full circle fate. When I was a little girl, I used to write letters to the Philadelphia Flyers asking for a job. I was so desperate to work in hockey as a reporter that I used to stay up at night writing letters saying, how come I don't see any girls on the broadcast? It really was a childhood dream of mine that I wanted to make manifest. So it it did feel strangely like the stars had aligned. But I think those passions, when they stay with you, there's something to be said for seeing them through. And I do believe that, especially when you're young and there are so many opportunities open to you, you can't always think about where is this leading. Sometimes you do have to think about why is this calling to me right now? Because sometimes you can't see the full runway. It's not completely in view. So a couple of things. One, at the beginning of that, you talked about risk as an asset. And I love that. You've got to manage it, both career portfolio. So I think that was a great observation. But two things, and we can move on. Then or now, did you speak any Russian? Now I do, then I did not. Fluently or fluently in a hockey setting or, or just to order dinner? How fluent? I would say conversational and especially in a hockey setting. I would be remiss to say professionally proficient because in a banking setting, for example, I wouldn't be able to hold my own. But to navigate my daily life and to be able to talk about what I needed to talk about in a hockey setting, I would feel comfortable. And how'd you pick that up? Did you take a class? I was taking classes during my fellowship program. It was a component of the program. And then I chose to continue with tutors and to just push myself to speak whenever I had the opportunity. Oh, good for you. And again, my daughter, Abby, is an example. I'm encouraging her to get some overseas experience. She's with Salesforce. And I said to her, don't go to Dublin or London 
because culturally and language-wise, you're not going to learn as much versus maybe Russia's off the table, clearly, but parts of Asia is an example. And people do speak English everywhere these days. But if you get into markets like Tokyo, as an example, you do have to immerse yourself very quickly. And I think that's part of the uniform, which I think is great. Last point, we can move on. You talked about as a young girl writing letters as maybe a frustrated Flyers fan. What is gender diversity like? both in Russia and also reporters in Russia and working maybe in the locker rooms, I suspect you might have been the only woman or maybe Russia's different. There was a fair bit more representation than I expected. I would say the proximity I had was somewhat rare. I was brought in as a locker room reporter and that model was shifting rapidly when I first got there. I would say that a lot of teams were only just starting to bring that in, let's say, five years ago. And I remember very clearly being down in the locker room in an early game and a security guard trying to manhandle me out, being like, she's a girlfriend. She's a girlfriend. She can't be down here. And they were like, she's not a girlfriend. She's doing her job. And it was funny because I had a press pass on and I'm like, I think it's pretty self-explanatory what I'm doing down here with a press pass. But later on, that changed. And there are a lot of female reporters and anchors, in fact, some very prominent ones that are operating there. And that really impressed me. And I was thrilled to see it. And there are also some very high-level female executives, whether it's lawyers, the head of international communications there who gave me a fair number of really high-profile opportunities, is a woman. And she was reaching out to an American woman, no less to raise her up. And it just goes to show like how diversity engenders more diversity in the workplace. And that was something I really loved about being over there. I appreciate the work you do there. We need to do a better job in the US and certainly in our industry. And I always try to find reasons to highlight it, reasons to do better myself. I'm glad you brought that up and point well taken. You are one of the best when it comes to that. You are always lifting up the women in your remit. And I can't thank you enough. I always see you reaching out your hand and you've always done so for me. Well, I'll continue and just always try to do better. So maybe turning the page to Asset TV. So I don't know if I ever told you this, Julian, but I think when I first met you, as you said, it might have been at the beginning of your tenure at Asset TV 2016. And I would say I was somewhat media savvy, but it's very different talking to a reporter on a telephone and understanding where the story is going to go. And oftentimes with a print reporter, there's a very narrow discussion about what they're calling on. So you can do some advanced research. And I had done some video-based work at the time too. But I will say, as I think back, walking into that Art Deco building on Lexington Avenue and taking the elevator up and seeing the studio in Jack Welsh's old office and seeing you sitting there at the desk, very well poised and the cameras in front. It was a different experience for me. And it was somewhat intimidating. I was somewhat nervous. You made it seem very easy, which I think helped the conversation. But maybe a couple of things that this brings up. One, maybe some thoughts about the people on the other side, what your expectations are for somebody who's a good interviewee. And I think the hallmark of a good interviewee is to not say what you want them to say. What are your expectations when you're sitting down with somebody on the other side of the microphone or the camera? And maybe some thoughts about what works well and what works less well based on your experience. It's such a great question. And I find that I try to go in with as few expectations as possible, knowing full well how intimidating the experience is. Because when I was in hockey, I actually, for the first time, was being interviewed a lot more than I was interviewing because I was now being interviewed about Russian prospects, for example, by the New York Post 
or Forbes. And it was the first time that the tables had been flipped on me. I got a taste of my own medicine, so to speak. So I think coming out of that experience, I now have a different level of empathy with the guests that come in. I think that I try to come in open-minded to what it is that they might be wanting. But I love when a guest comes in and they say something to me along the lines of, I'll answer anything, or I'm happy to go anywhere. Someone who's so deeply comfortable with their subject matter that they're willing to go anywhere and it doesn't have to be canned. Because a lot of people, and it's not because they don't know their subject matter, it's just that I think they're so afraid of taking a step out of line. They want the interview to be canned. And in general, a canned interview looks far more awkward than one where maybe you stumble just a tiny bit because it's improvised, but you're more willing to go out on a limb and discuss the subject matter on which you are an expert. You wouldn't be sitting in that seat if you weren't an expert on the subject matter itself. So being willing to take that little bit of a risk. And I know that some journalists can be out there to get you. I'm not saying that I don't fully understand the risk that journalism can imply, but taking a little bit of that risk and allowing the conversation to open itself up more naturally can result in a much better conversation in general. And so I really do enjoy having free-flowing conversations where I feel that I can respond more in the moment to whatever the person is saying to me. Because very often, If I have someone coming in who's very nervous and is very concerned about predetermined talking points, I don't feel that I can stray very far from them because if I take the person off piste, they might crumble or they might immediately freeze. And I'm not looking to do that. That's not what I think is going to result in the best version of video or television. So I really enjoy when someone is willing to take a little bit of faith in me that I'm not going to take us so far. I'm not going to ask you about neuroscience when we're having a conversation about private equity. So if you trust me to stay within our remit, let's try and flow this conversation together. And that tends to result in the best interview. I don't know enough about Asset TV's platform then and now, Jillian, but also nervousness is one thing. But if you've got an asset manager as a guest, and they're not nervous, but more so they're very adamant about getting their talking points across. And it's one thing to have talking points about the benefits of private equity as an example. But if you're going to talk about the benefits, I think either they or you, I guess, have to steer them toward the risks and the shortfalls as well, because everything's got to be balanced. But I think oftentimes, maybe sometimes you have guests that it's just about almost commercialized talking points because they've got a product to sell at the end of the day. And probably not the perfect guest. You probably have seen this a fair amount of time. How do you steer them or maybe advice on this podcast back to what the listener wants to see and hear? And if they're looking for corporate talking points, they can find those on the website. But if they're taking the time to sit down with somebody like you, I think the listener or the viewer's expectation is, I'm hoping to get more of a balanced diet as to both opportunities, risks, shortcomings. Asset TV really prides itself in being an educational platform first and foremost. Sure, a lot of the people that are coming to Asset TV are doing manager due diligence, and they may very well be watching this to understand more about a product. But if they watch and they're getting hit over the head with talking points that they can just pick up from a fund prospectus, are they really getting that much more color than they could have gotten from your website? Whereas if they're listening to a manager who's speaking really freely about the environment in which we're operating, both the opportunities and the risks that are involved with a specific strategy. And they're really getting a comfortable sense of how well this manager is operating within the environment that we're dealing with. That engenders so much more trust 
than someone who's spitting out talking points. At the end of the day, I think video personalizes beyond what a prospectus can. And you really show off your level of comfort, your ability by speaking freely. And if you speak freely, that's not about talking points. That's really about showing the entire universe of what you're witnessing. And that includes risks. It includes the areas of the market you're avoiding. It includes some of the things you're keeping an eye on going into the second half of the year. So I agree with you, Bill. When you come in and you're trying to get those talking points across and make a marketing pitch, it comes across as inauthentic. And video is a really nice platform to show a level of authenticity and to show a comfort level with your own subject matter. And that comes across way better when you're being full and open and honest and transparent. And that is ultimately what I think a viewer will come in and say, okay, this manager knows what they're talking about. I feel more comfortable with them. And as I'm doing my due diligence, maybe I'm going to want to allocate more to someone that's educating me versus pitching to me. Yeah, and I think in everything, including chat GPT and generative AI, trust is the killer app. And maybe it doesn't come out as much in the written word, but people can see it and smell it and almost taste it if they see it on a video-based feed. So I think that's very good advice to be natural and trustworthy and balanced. But what are you hearing around the virtues and benefits of democratization? Because I'm sure that's very much on the tips of the tongues of the asset managers. It's huge right now. So we have a large financial advisor watch base. It's really who we cater to. And we watch a lot of, let's say, the financial advisor surveys that are coming out in terms of their allocations. And a lot of the surveys that have come out in the first half of the year, or even toward the end of last year, have reflected this increased allocation to alternatives, or at the very least, an increased interest in alternatives. And as a result, our programming has reflected that. We did one of our first ever private equity masterclasses. We are having an increased number of advisors coming on to our Advisor Insights program saying, we're looking for opportunities to allocate to alternatives. I just had the CEO of Caliber, Chris Loeffler, on talking about how he's trying to educate more advisors about the middle market real estate opportunity space and explain all the ways to grant access. We're seeing this because you are getting this increased narrative of 60-40 is dead and how traditional portfolios really suffered. So yes, I think that this democratization conversation is coming up and we are seeing this increased appetite for alternatives. And I don't think that's necessarily going away anytime soon. And so we are seeing an increased number of asset managers with, let's say, real estate or infrastructure products becoming interested in appearing on Asset TV. We are starting to increase our alternatives programming. We have an alternatives masterclass coming up. And all of this is in response to our viewership demand, our advisor demand. And our advisors are saying, how do we get access? We have questions about liquidity, who can answer them? And a lot of these questions are being answered by the asset managers. And so I think that this conversation is here to stay, and we're certainly having to respond to it, which means asset managers have to respond to it. I agree with all of that. I've said in this program quite often, we have to democratize education before we democratize product. And I think the narrative around the 60-40s dead or let's go capture the illiquidity premium, investors don't really and maybe don't at all understand what that means. But I think it's a little bit simpler to say, remember the GFC and remember Dodd-Frank, the banks are not lending anymore. So the home of lending is now the private markets. And the same thing with equity. It's not so much the illiquidity premium, but value creation 
capital formation, that is a private market matter. So shouldn't the investor have greater access to that as well? And I think that begins a discussion centered around high-level awareness as to where things are going. And then I think that maybe generates a better discussion around long-term investing. So there's still a lot of work to be done there. But Jillian, maybe a little bit of a plug for what Kaya is doing. So we created this platform called Unified by Kaya that's headed up by my colleague, Aaron Philbeck. And what I love about this is we went to a lot of the large wirehouses, some RIAs, some of the largest asset managers and said, could you work with us advising us and informing us on a platform of micro-credentials that we're going to create and we're going to control what's in them, but we need your input. And we want all of you to point to this as an educational solution that the market should think very, very highly of. And it's so far so good. It's only been about 18 months. We've rolled out one on private credit, one on digital assets. We have real estate coming up. We have a horizontal offering, which will be our fundamentals 2.0. So maybe in your programming, maybe you don't need to have me back on, although I'd love to come again. But We always need you, Bill. That would be great. But maybe Aaron could talk a little bit more about this as well, because I know education has been an important part of what you do, what this platform does. And we would always be open to having that part of the discussion stand on equal footing with product access. I agree with you. I think education preceding the democratization, the point that you made is so incredibly important. It's so much of what we get is not how do I gain access? It's what do I need to know before I gain access? And is this even right for me? And I think all of what you're doing just feeds into that. And it's so very important because alternatives are on some level, new territory for a lot of advisors, if not new territory, then territory to which they haven't heavily allocated in the past few years. And it's so important that they understand what they're getting themselves into that the whole market understands. And so I think what you're doing is so incredibly important. I appreciate that. Thank you. So where is the studio now? Are you still in that same intimidating spot that I described? We are still in that very intimidating Art Deco building, the GE building. We are no longer on the 45th floor, but we're on the 20th. We've expanded. The studio's gotten bigger. Still beautiful views. It's no longer Jack Welsh's office, but it's still very beautiful. And yes, that building itself is incredible. It should be a landmark in its own right. It's just gorgeous. So you'll have to come and see the new studio and the expansion of it. It looks great. Who owns Asset TV now? We're part of the Think Digital Group, which is based out of the UK. We also have sister companies such as Insure TV that specializes in insure programming, insurance programming, and we do a sort of host of programs that run the gamut in asset management. So we have a solution for everything. And we've been operating for 20 years. We're getting ready to celebrate our 20th anniversary. Any special plans for that? I believe that they're in the works. I know our CEO, Craig Walton, is going to be coming over fairly soon. So I'm looking forward to hearing. I feel so lucky that I'm back in time for it. I'm looking forward to hearing the plans. Well, it's a great milestone. We're celebrating our 21st year. So you're legal. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. So hopefully we'll be responsible and legal at the same time. But it is a great milestone, a representative of longevity when many people have rinsed out, been acquired, moved on to something else. And it's nice to see the base platform is back and you're back there as well. By the time this airs, I don't have to worry about mentioning it here and having an onslaught, but we do have an event in New York on the 6th of September, I believe, at Club 101. And both Jane Bach and William Ma will physically be there. Oh, no way. It's a reunion of my hedge fund panel in Hong Kong in 2015. 
So I'll send you a note or the invite. If you can join us, it would be great. And maybe you could even do some on the ground interviews there too, if it suited you, but they'd love to see you again and I'll pass it on to you. I'd love to see them. That would be great. It's great to see you. I'm curious to see what this book is all about because the pivot and what you learned culturally and the abrupt end, and I know so many, and maybe you would put yourself in the bottom decile of people that were inconvenienced by just the horrible acts that happened over there, but it wasn't a pivot to your career as well. So I look forward to hearing more. Maybe when the book is out, I'd love to have you back. I would be honored, Bill. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat. It's such an honor to be on this platform. You do some great work and it's just been so great to have such a long-standing connection and friendship with you all these years. I'm so grateful for it. As am I. I'll see you soon. Thanks, Julian. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Educational Alpha. I'm your host, Bill Kelly. Learn more about the Kaya Association and subscribe to the show at kaya.org. That's C-A-I-A.org. See you next time. Thank you.